I'm Luke Simmons. And I am Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right, Seth. Well, good to have you back with us. <laughs> you know, I always I, like how I introduce you as though this isn't just your podcast. But. Yeah. Welcome back to our thing. That's what my wife says when I come home. Welcome back to <laughs> as a guest and my our house. Yeah. Well, welcome to the King and Culture podcast. For those of you listening, uh, it's great to have you with us. We're in a short little series we've been doing related to the doctrine of grace and the history of the Reformation. We've been uh, slowly kind of working our way through what have traditionally, I guess, been known as the five points of Calvinism. Uh, we're not making Calvin or Calvinism the big flag we're waving. We're trying to dig into the scriptures. But this is something that we have some convictions about uh, personally and broadly as a church, um, and we get questions about it. So we thought this would be a good place to go deeper and to dig into it a little bit. So, Seth, thanks for your work on this. Where are we? Uh, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about atonement, uh, the, the substitutionary death, atoning death of Jesus on the cross. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And the question we're talking about is what exactly did it accomplish? Okay. So just to stop there, when you say atonement, I, I'm thinking, okay, when do you ever hear the word atone? And the only time I feel like I ever hear it is when I watch a football game and some guy like drops a wide open pass in the second quarter. And then, you know, later in the game, he makes a great catch and they say, oh, he atoned for his mistake, um, that sort of a thing. But I don't want to just jump into atonement without, really interesting just that word what does that even mean where does that come from yeah it can mean reparation like the the payment of repair or the cost so we've been told the wages of sin is death in romans and so someone's got to pay the wages and we see uh that wages of sin is death that uh back in the levitical system that sheep and lambs were were killed to atone for sin and in, in the sense that god is holy he's just uh, he doesn't just let things go, but he's actually a good judge who punishes sin. So atonement is the means by which sin is paid for. And and probably the biggest Jewish holiday is the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. That would be, I mean, right now people are thinking a little bit about, you know, we've just come off of Hanukkah and that sort of thing, but but the Day of Atonement, I mean, that'd be the high holiday of, yeah. of the Jewish tradition. Yeah, Hanukkah is a big deal in America in Western cultures because it kind of gets swept up with Christmas and Jewish kids like getting presents too. So at least that's what, <laughs> so the reformed Jews who are tend to be like the more like secular ones emphasize Hanukkah a ton, but the more conservative Jews tend to really emphasize Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, this idea that God is holy and uh, through like lament and grief and sacrifice, uh, especially at the temple. And when there was a temple, we must make up for what we've done wrong against God. That's just a funny little parenthesis there that in, in Judaism, the reformed folks are more liberal theologically mm-hmm. in Christianity. The reformed folks tend to be more theologically conservative. So uh, don't mm-hmm. get those confused, but all right. So the atonement is, and then the day of atonement was that particular day when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. There was this big transference of, of the guilt of the sin of the people onto the head of the lamb. It's also worth noting that According to the Roman Catholics, we would be liberal or progressive because we are breaking away from tradition. Oh, okay, so great. Sorry, we, I, I, we, I thought I closed that loop, but but that's good. That's also good to know because we're throwing off the Roman tradition. Okay, for progressive, whereas we would say huh. conservative because we're going back before the tradition. Got it. 
for the question anyway. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So it depends on who you ask on whether you're progressive or conservative. Yeah, yeah. So give us just one more little snapshot. Like what, what kind of stuff would happen on the Day of Atonement? So uh, a lamb would be slain, and uh, there's two lambs that would be slain. One would, uh, or actually one would, be, one would be slain as like for sin, and one, the scapegoat, would be sent off into the wilderness, kind of separating the sin from these things. And you have like this idea of separation, and sin causes us to be cut off from the people. And then you also have this idea of payment. Those two things go hand in hand. And so you have the sacrificial lamb and you have the scapegoat that are sent out. And those are the two central functions of uh, the the high holy days of the Day of Atonement and the book of Leviticus. And in Christ, you kind of have both functions, or you don't kind of, you exactly have both functions. Yeah. Where Christ is the payment for sin and the Father turns his back on the Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And there's there's both the, the cutting off and the turning away from and the separation and there's the the wrath or the punishment delivered to sin in Christ. And so that's most literally what atonement functions as is it it appeases or it assuages or it pays uh, the penalty that, that sin requires. So why is this part of the conversation related to, you know, the doctrines of grace? We talked about total depravity that, uh, you know, or total inability, right? We're unable to do anything that merits righteousness before God. Uh, we talked about unconditional election. We talked about how God converts us and draws us to himself. How is this part of that conversation? Well, there's a couple questions here that I think we need to wrestle with. One is, does the death of Jesus make us savable or does it save us? Hmm. So okay. is, it, is, it as, is it as though Jesus paying our penalty on the sin, does it make it make us salvageable? Are we now savable? Or does it actually save? So is the atonement effective to produce salvation, or is it effective to produce possible salvation? Okay. So that's the question number one. Huh. Uh, and so we have to wrestle with that. Number two, like when Jesus says, it is finished, what exactly is he talking about? I finished it. Is he finishing the salvation project? Is he finishing the atonement for sin, or is he finishing the possible salvation project? Is he finishing, I've made a way now, now you must walk that way. So what exactly is being accomplished in the death of Jesus? Okay. That's the question. And so from a more Arminian or Molinistic perspective, we can talk about it later, or kind of broadly evangelical perspective, uh, we will say the death of Jesus on the cross saves us, but functionally what we're saying is it makes us savable or it makes us possibly saved. Okay. Whereas I think in the Reformed Church, we're trying to say, no, the death of Jesus on the cross actually saves us. It secures our salvation, that our debt is paid in full, that it is finished, period, actually finished. Okay. That there's not more to be done that's going to pay for our sin, but it's actually paid. That for all of God's people, that their sin was fully and finally and absolutely atoned for on the cross. Okay. Period, the end. That they were saved. They were secured. It was, it was the end. Yeah, so I'm guessing a lot of people listening would go, okay, does the death of Christ make us savable? Or does it actually save us? I think they go, well, of course it actually saves us. But but what you're saying is it's pretty common in evangelical kind of tradition. I don't know if it's even traditional, but kind of just typical vanilla evangelicalism to have a doctrinal approach that says more like, no, Christ's death makes you savable. And then what would actually save you from that point? The, the savability would be, okay, well, it's kind of like Jesus puts all this payment in a bank account, but you have to cash the check when you repent and believe. So there's all these unused funds hmm. in the bank account. You know, it's uh, like I think about 
um, in a mortgage, you have my, uh, what's like the, the escrow account. Yeah. Right. And every now and then I'll get a letter in the mail. It's like, oh, you have unused funds in your escrow account. Your mortgage payment's going down by $40 a month or whatever. Or I'll say there's not enough funds in your escrow account. Your mortgage payment's going up by $60 a month. Like there's kind of like this slush fund okay. of might use it. So did Jesus' death on the cross create a slush fund of might use it, depending on how many people repent and believe, which would effectually mean that a lot of the payment or the wrath that Jesus absorbed on the cross was wasted. So there's wasted. Because you have lots of people that don't go ahead and repent and believe. Jesus they suffers, leave it on the table. They it, don't take advantage of it. Jesus suffers for people's sin who then also go and have to suffer for their sin in hell. Okay. So that's like that creates like an injustice situation where... God is punishing sins twice, like a double jeopardy, like you get tried twice by it. Uh, and so either Jesus fully absorbed the payment for sin on the cross, and therefore you cannot go to hell because the justice, is, the verdict has already been rendered, or you kind of have this God's judging the same sin twice situation, or you have this idea of waste of payment, that God has paid for people's sin and he's just not cashing it in, or he's still holding their sin against them even though it's been paid for. So it creates a justice problem for God. Okay. But beyond just some of the logic of that, there's kind of this Trinitarian perspective that I want us to wrestle with. As we talked about regeneration, conversion, the, the internal call that the Spirit regenerates some people, that some people are given new hearts to believe. That the Father elects some, he appoints some. We talked about how uh, difficult that is. Uh, but here we also have this. Yeah, and I remember one of the key things you said in that conversation was until you believe that it would be totally just for God to save nobody, you really aren't going to be able to get your heart around this. Yeah. Yeah. And then here what we have is that the son atones for the sins of some. So there's okay. this, this project that the Trinity is collectively engaged in saving a certain group of people. And this is the one, the point to me that uh, I get the most nervous talking about. I remember when... Like overall, just the doctrine of atonement? Yeah, because one, I, I do believe the Bible teaches it, and so I feel compelled to say it. Yeah. Uh, two... I don't necessarily think it's worth dividing over. Three, uh, I just know that it's very triggering for a lot of people who yeah. hear this stuff, and they and it's uh, it's difficult to mm -hmm. to stomach. And even uh, back in the day at East Valley Bible Church, you know, there'd be hundreds of people would leave the church when right. Tom would teach this stuff. And so here we go, though. So okay, ready, ready for the Bible? We haven't talked Bible much yet. I'm, I'm gonna yeah, I mean, already it just like there is something that goes okay. God chose some, Jesus died for some, the Spirit activates some, feels like already like John 3.16 is going off in my head. Like, well, wait, 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 hold on. I thought God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Or First Timothy 2, which you preached on not too long ago, where it was like, okay, God desires all people to be like, wait, wait a minute. What, all, I thought it was the world, and I thought it was everybody, and, and now you're talking some, like, yeah, there is a bristle in me. So, um, yeah, let's not just talk logically. Let's talk biblically. What yeah. are you... Uh... Well, we'll get there on those texts. I okay. Have, I have them in, in my notes. Okay. So... Great. But here's a definition of what we're talking about. It comes from uh, this book by a guy named uh, David and Jonathan Gibson. So I guess that's two guys. <laughs> a guy named David and Jonathan. Yeah. Uh, David and Jonathan Gibson. And um, the book is called He Came From Heaven and He Sought Her, which is a, a limb... Or, uh, not a limb, a lyric from a hymn. Yeah. A limb lyric. <laughs> a, a hymn lyric uh, where it says, um, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation. 
by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And you know, that's a good old hymn that mm-hmm. kind of really is the bread and butter of this, that from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. From With his own blood he bought her. Hmm. And so they give this definition of definite atonement, that in the death of Jesus Christ, the triune God intended to achieve the redemption of every person given to the Son by the Father in eternity past, and to apply the accomplishments of his sacrifice to each of them by the Spirit. So there is a specific uh, application of the righteousness of the Son to the people who are given to the Son by the Father in his death, uh, is the way that... Uh, functioning plays out. So um, there's another definition from um, a book by Curtis and Steele. It says this, Christ's redeeming work was definite in design and accomplishment. It was intended to render complete satisfaction for certain specified sinners, and it actually secured salvation for these individuals and no one else. All for whom Christ sacrificed himself will be saved. Um, Kevin DeYoung says it like this, the glory of definite atonement is that the cross doesn't just make us savable, it makes us saved. Hmm. So that's the, what we're arguing here, yeah. is that uh, Jesus absolutely and certainly dies for these people. So uh, I, I want us to envision here uh, what I'm calling horizons of the atonement, that the atonement does of a handful of things, and the Bible uses all three of these horizons to discuss atonement. So if you think about concentric circles, Big, medium, small, you have the centerpiece, the medium piece, the big piece, kind of like a dartboard. Their horizon would be what close, medium, far. Yeah. Sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. And so there's cosmic, there's communal, and there's individual. Okay. So big picture, cosmic, medium picture, communal, or, or central, like uh, in between picture, and the smaller one is individual. That the, the Bible uses all three horizons or all three uh, visions of what God is accomplishing in his atonement that Jesus dies for the cosmos, uh, Jesus dies for the community, and Jesus dies for individuals. Okay. And so um, the death of Jesus both secures new creation, and it secures the new people, and it secures me. Hmm. So we can see like that. So, okay. So we say Jesus died for the cosmos. Um, that, that can even talk about like world or the world order. Um, Stephen Mott in his book, New um, uh Biblical ethics and social change talks about how the Greek term cosmos means order or that which is assembled together. In the New Testament, the word refers to the order of society and indicates evil as social and political character beyond it, isolated actions of individuals. So it's talking about the entire world order that Jesus loves the world, his creation, that Jesus loves his creation. They did not give up on his creation. He's not going to blow it up and start over. He's actually redeeming the cosmos, the world. And in same in John 3, 16, God so loved the world. This yeah. is talking about that word, Greek word there is cosmos. It's not talking about God so loved the humans, but it's talking about God so loved the world. He did not give up on his creation project, that God built the world to be the temple um, for his presence and for humans to inhabit it and, and work and keep it. And here we have him securing that. Even we see this in Romans chapter 8, that uh, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of whom suggested it. I'm going on about how the creation itself is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, that creation longs and groans for new creation, and how the death of Jesus on the cross actually is part of what secures the salvation of the world, that sin will be undone, that tears will be wiped away. Hmm. Um, in Colossians 1, Paul writes this, um, 
For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, things on earth and things in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Hmm. Yeah. So, so this reconciliation of all things to God, the cosmos, the entire universe, the creation, is reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus. So he makes peace with the fallen creation and himself with the peace and the blood of his cross. So hmm. there's a cosmic scope that Jesus certainly atones for. There's a communal scope. This is actually the most common use of the atonement language throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that Jesus dies for his people. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave his life for her, that Jesus is securing his bride, securing his people. Um, and then the least common of all three of these, interestingly, is that Jesus died for me, individuals. Galatians 2.20 is an example of this. Right? Jesus loves me, loved me, and gave himself for me. Right? Mm. Christians can really say that. So there's cosmic, communal, and individual scopes of these things. Uh, so that that's kind of the broad scope of what Jesus accomplishes in the atonement, uh, that he's reconciling the world, reconciling a community, and reconciling individuals to himself all at the same time. So it seems like the, the biggest thing in here really has to do with how effective was the death of Jesus. Yes. Yeah, did it possibly redeem all these things, or did it certainly redeem all these things? Yeah, and, I, and when I ask it that way, I start to go, well, I want it to do, I want it to really do it, right? Because, I mean, we, we sort of began this thing going, um, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me, going like, oh gosh, if it's left up to us, the, if, if there's any part of it that's left up to us, I just, it's sort of hard for me to go, okay, this is going to work. Yeah. So let's look at a handful of texts here that I think illustrate and make this point. Uh, so here we got um, this idea of propitiation and redemption. Redemption is purchasing out of slavery. Propitiation is payment through wrath. So some word will come up uh, a chunk. So here's Mark ten forty five. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, but came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hmm. Okay. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us. 2 Corinthians 5.18.19, Christ reconciled us to himself in the cross. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us, speaking about his death and resurrection. And there the us is not an ethnic group. It's not a nation. It's, a, it's the church. It's the people who are descendants of Abraham by faith. That's yeah. what Galatians 3 is talking about. In context, it's people who trust in Yahweh, descendants of Abraham by faith. So Galatians 3 is every tribe, tongue, and nation, literally like those, the people of faith yeah. is the us. Isaiah 53, 8, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Hmm. Uh, Matthew one twenty one, he will save his people from their sins. Luke one sixty eight. he has come and has redeemed his people. Uh, even on the question of who Jesus dies for, John 10 11, 14, and 15, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Hmm. So it's not for all of, it's for a particular 
a group, Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a letter to the church. It's not a letter to broadly humanity. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So we, us, these are communal language. John 17, 9 uh, and 19. Uh, this is talking about the role of the priest. The priest makes sacrifice for sin. Jesus Christ is setting himself up, setting himself up here as the intercessor for the people of God. Uh, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and Christ is holding himself up here in John 17, 9 as the true and greater high priest. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, speaking to the Father, for they are yours. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth, that Jesus is making intercession for a given group of people. And then uh, you you mentioned this text earlier, um, John First John two two, he's the propitiation for our sins and not only ours but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute, because propitiation, like the way I always kind of shorthand that is wrath absorber. He's the wrath absorber for our sins. That's great. Yeah, um, and you go, but and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, wait a minute, if he absorbed the wrath of the sins of the whole world, well then. Clearly, that is not what it seems. That feels bigger than just dying for his people. The the important cross reference, I think, is in John eleven fifty one. And so, if you go, okay, First John two, John eleven fifty one, these are written by the same person, right? And so, it's interesting because when you get there, you end up with the same sentence structure. Um, this is where there's the there's the one priest um, Caiaphas, who basically says about Jesus, hey. It'd be better if one man died for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John adds this. He says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So it's it's like in Greek, the exact same sentence structure, right? He was the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Here it's, he didn't die for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So it seems like when John is saying, you know, First John two two, he for the sins of the whole world, meaning not just the Jews, for people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Yeah, one of the things that is regularly emphasized in these epistles, First John and First Timothy in particular, is that they're regularly correcting this view that Jesus died only for Jews. Yeah, we have to understand that what they're correcting is this view that no, Jesus died for all kinds of people, all types. That all in Greek can mean all without exception, meaning every single one, or all without distinction, every single kind. And so the Bible emphatically teaches every single kind all over the place, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we see this this idea that Jesus dying for the whole world, or Jesus um, desiring that all kinds of people be saved, we should understand that that's talking about all without distinction, every single kind of person. Yeah. Tall, short, rich, thin, poor, yeah. black, brown, yeah. white, yeah. like all, all the types um, super immoral, relatively moral. Everyone needed, every every kind of person is invited and included uh, to repent and believe. So I have um, some questions that I think come up here that I want to ask, kind of on behalf of some folks. Before we do that, are there any more texts or um, more kind of foundational things you want to work through? Uh, there's a couple. So, one thing the best book on this topic is by a guy named John Owen wrote the book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And it is pretty airtight. Um, I actually have a, 
an article that's like a summary of it, an introduction to it. Okay. That we could put in our show notes for those people who really want to cannonball in and yeah. wrestle with it. And again, I just want to emphasize, like, I do think the Bible teaches this. And I also am not convinced that this is worth dividing over. I'm certain we have members in our church who hate what I'm saying right now. And I go like, that's okay with me. I just, I, I don't think it's worth dividing over. I do think the Bible teaches it and I'm willing to teach it for that reason. Um, and so I hope this like really begins the conversation doesn't end it for a lot of people. But here's some of like, I'm going to summarize some of the arguments that John Owen makes in okay. the death of death and death of Christ. And the article we'll post is actually an, a paper that John J.I. Packer wrote as an introduction to John Owen's book. Okay. It's kind of a helpful summary of it. John Owen is pretty inaccessible. It's dense. It's yeah. dense. Hard to read. John Piper said that John Owen writes like an elephant walks. <laughs> Which, is, Which coming from John Piper, who a lot of people have a hard time reading, yeah, he, is write, funny. he writes like a sloth walks, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, it's just it's slow, dense, yeah. and destructive. <laughs> and so, so, so here's the question: Like, why are some punished in hell? Okay. Well, the answer is because of their sin. Well, the response is, but Christ died for their sin. Well, the answer then is like, well, but then because of their unbelief. But the response is. But unbelief is a sin. The answer is, well, then Jesus must must not have died for some unbelief. Okay, so then Christ died for some sin, not all sin. So that's part of John Owen's argument. Okay. Is, is, and if you believe that anyone goes to hell, you have to concede that Jesus only died for some sin. Hmm. Okay. Even if it's just Jesus only didn't die for some people's unbelief. Like there's, there's a has, if people are going to hell to be punished for sin, then you must believe that Jesus died for some. Because if, in his perspective, if Jesus died for it, then it worked. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That it's paid for. That otherwise you have this double jeopardy that Jesus is collect, that God is collecting payment twice for sin, once in Jesus and once in you in hell. And that would be unjust. So then we see, we have really these options. Jesus died for one, no sins. Two, some of the sins of all people, which would mean everyone goes to hell, you know, maybe with a more mild version of hell, I guess. Uh, three, all of the sins of all, which would be universalism, nobody goes to hell. Or four, all of the sins of some, which would be okay. the more biblical teaching. So you're kind of left with these options. And I do think that both exegesis, that is what the scriptures teach, and logic based on the atonement of these things requires that we would hold that Jesus died for all of the sins of some, thus making atonement definite and making us saved, not savable in the, in his crucifixion. Okay. So, um, can I start asking some questions then? Yeah, I got through all my stuff. So great. So, um, I want to start, I think from more biblical objections and then get to maybe the more emotional ones. Um, what do we do with passages like first Timothy two that says that God desires all people to be saved or, I think it's Ezekiel 18 that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked or, um, you know, these verses that seem to say like, okay, God, <laughs> so is it like God want, God wants people to be saved, but he wasn't willing to have Jesus die for them. How, that doesn't make sense to me. You're right. It's tough. I do think that, I think we talked about this on our previous episode or two, this idea that there are multiple wills, the way the Bible talks about God's will. You know, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about it's God's will that you be sexually pure. Okay, so clearly God's will isn't always accomplished. That could be called his his um, 
will of uh, desire or his passive will or his will of command. There's what God wants for us, kind of like fatherly heart for his people or fatherly heart for all people, fatherly heart for his creation, that he is uh, unhappy with the state of some things. And to have this belief in like a God who's unchanging and omnipotent, who also reveals himself to have a form of will that produces disappointment in him um, is, is difficult, but the Bible teaches it. Um, so it's like the will of desire or the will of command. But then there's also this will of decree or will of prescription or, or will of, de- of, uh, of de- accomplishing will, the, the active will of God, which is that which he brings about what he desires and he brings about what he wants that, uh, He's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, uh, says the psalmist. And so that those two things exist in tension. We talked about how uh, God reveals himself really in two horizons. There's God as author and God as actor. Yep. And that he is both the author of world history, unsurprised, unfazed. And uh, the, the way the uh, old theologians talked about it was like he's, um, he is impassable which is like the come from the Greek term apathy, mm-hmm. that he's passionless, that he is unsurprised, he's not moved emotionally, he's uh, in that sense not tossed. Okay. And so that's God as author. Okay. But then there's God as actor, which God also reveals himself on that horizon, that he's a character in the story, not just the author of the story, mm. you know, that Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. <laughs> and in yeah. that mode, he um, has highs and lows, he's frustrated, he's angered, He's moved. He weeps. Yep. He's, this is most clearly the person of Jesus. I do think that when it comes like our relational interacting with him, we're called to mostly interact with him as actor. Yeah. That the revelation of God in Jesus in the Gospels is mostly revealing God as actor and that we interact with him preeminently on that basis. Uh, but when it comes to like matters of world history and our salvation, mm-hmm. there's also this horizon of God as author that yeah. we, like in the Reformed tribe, go... This is also true, and this creates tremendous tension that you have a God who's an actor who is moved and a God who is author who is unmoved, and we have both of these things. Yeah. And appropriately so, we have to hold this intention. And I think especially folks who are going to best understand doctrines of grace, Reformed theology, et cetera, et cetera, are going to be filled with tremendous tension and try to affirm all the Bible teaches, even when it seems like it's intention or even perhaps looking like contradiction but not. Yeah. Well, I, I'm struck by, and I, I don't know that you know fully the answer to this, but right, sometimes people will actually call themselves, I'm a four-point Calvinist. And if someone says that, they're almost certainly talking about this doctrine of definite atonement. Right? They're going, okay, I'm, I'm with you on total inability. I'm with you on unconditional election. I'm with you on irresistible grace and the, and the need for conversion. And I'm with you that God holds on to his people. But I'm not with you on that he only died for his people. But it, this feels like, this doesn't feel any different to me than embracing the doctrine of election. I mean, if God chose some to be saved, that doesn't feel different than God died for some and that saved them. <laughs> why do you think, um, again, everyone's different, but wh- why is there more resistance to this particular teaching than election? I think mostly it's rooted in the heart for evangelism. People want to be able to look people and say, like, Jesus died for you, repent and believe. Well, that was going to be one of my next questions. Is is that something you can do? Can I say, hey, Jesus died for you? Yeah, Trust I, him. I do think you can say that. I think that um, 
all persons on the virtue or on the basis of them being creation. There's a sense in which that God is reconciling the whole of creation to himself. And we talked about those three horizons of the atonement. And I don't think it's like manipulative or misrepresentative to say to someone or anybody, Jesus Christ loves you and gave himself for you. Because there is a reality that he's dying and reconciling the whole creation to himself. Now, the exact extent to that and the, the way that plays out, I do think there's something that's especially privileged about that for God's people to who repent and believe, right? This is, it's like uh, Charles Spurgeon uses the example of like you walk up to the gates of heaven and the front door says, whosoever will, and you walk through that front door or the arch, uh, probably what, mm-hmm. the gate, there's probably a gate in heaven. I think that's the, there you go. There's yep. a gate in heaven, you walk through it in the front gate as you're walking towards it. It says, whosoever will, you walk through the gate and you look back behind it and it says you were chosen. Yeah. And so there's just like this, a functional psychological process of conversion that people resonate with um, that goes like, I recognize Jesus died for me. So I exercised faith and trust in him. Mm-hmm. And so it's like belief that Jesus died for you precedes trust in the fact that he died for you. Yeah. And so the, he, and so there is like a, a tension there. And so I think there's a functional reality of that. I do think that people read these texts about Jesus loving the world um, and reading that as humans or individuals is a pretty fair reading. Like it's not like a, it's not a ridiculous. It's reading. not crazy. Yeah, it's not crazy. Um, I had professors in seminary argue with each other about this, you know. And yeah. does, does the world mean cosmos, or does the world mean all the humans? And Steve Tracy, who I liked a ton, said it meant all the humans. Uh, Wayne Grudem, who I liked a ton, said it. I forget what he said. He didn't really talk about it, I guess. <laughs> so Calvin thought it meant just the elect, which I don't think is true. I think Calvin's reading of John three sixteen is wrong. Hmm. Uh, I don't think you can read John three as the elect. I think you have to read it as cosmos or all humans. So. There's that. So, yeah. So I think on the matters of like drawing out meaning on individual verses, there's tremendous room for debate on this. But I do think the, the main thing I'd say is we talked about those three horizons of the atonement, that there is the, the corporate, the communal, and then there's the cosmic, and then there's the individual. The overwhelming thrust throughout is that Jesus is coming to save his people from their sin, and he's dying for the people. So it's not individualistic. It's all, to that extent. Yeah. And so I think people have a difficult time with that. But yeah, I don't know. I know why people say they're four-point Calvinists is because they, they read the Bible and they go, well, it looks like predestination seems pretty true. It looks like election's pretty true. Yeah. It looks like God causes us to be born again to a living hope, and we can't cause ourselves to be born again. And so they're, they're probably just, frankly, more convinced by those texts. Than oh, and there's probably more of those texts. Yeah. Yeah. So, so well, I, what I, do, and I, do, then, I do think people want to be biblical, and I do sure. think there's reason— um, why they have a difficult time with this. Yeah. And then I guess one more question I have is at an emotional level, and I realize that's not the place to to start anything, um, but it is a place that you end up, right? And even in, a, in a, an emotional understanding of the Bible, I could see someone going like, this just kind of feels stingy. Like God doesn't seem stingy with grace. God seems over abounding with grace. God seems like the kind of God who is, like always got more for you than anyone's ever going to take advantage of. Like he, he, there's always going to be some left on the table. That's the nature of God that right. When Jesus is looking out over Jerusalem going, how long, how I longed to gather you under my wings, like, you know, like, and you wouldn't have me right. It seems like the grace of God's always going to be more than people are going to activate or experience. And yet this feels like, Nope, I only got a little bit. And it's just for you, and it's just for you, and it's a lot for you, but I got none for them. 
right? I, so I could I could see why emotionally people might feel like that. Yes. How do, how would you how would you try to help us feel and think through that? I do think that this kind of comes back to some of the, what we talked about this last episode, which was like until we actually believe it'd be just for Jesus to save nobody, we can't really embrace the fact that it's just that he saved some people. And so going back to even just idea of unconditional grace, unconditional love, that either we have to believe in a universalism that nobody goes to hell, which I think the Bible clearly does not teach that, or we have to believe in some type of like works-based merit system where people are saved on the basis of something in them that sets them apart from other people, which would be legalism, or we have to believe in this kind of comprehensive system of God's sovereign choice based on sheer grace. Yeah. And that's part of what's confounding about grace is it is just not fair. Sure. Yeah. Right. If you want fair, everybody goes to hell. If you want unfair, some people don't. And that's uncomfortable. Yeah. And this is why people who believe the Bible ought to be the most humble of all people is there's nothing in me. There's nothing in you. We can't go like, thank goodness I figured it out. Mm-hmm. It's just, we were plucked out and saved. Yeah. And, and there's no, nothing in us that we can point to that explains the salvation. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the places where I, I would like to leave the conversation. It's just to say, you know, this also should really just evoke worship in us, uh, for the Lord that he really saved us. You know, he, he really did it all from first to last. I think we talked about that in a previous episode. So yeah, this is, uh, it's difficult, but I think, I think when your heart gets around it and you see it in the scripture, you actually go, this is part of the good news that Jesus really did fully, totally, completely die for his people. And that did it all. Yeah. He didn't pay 99% and ask you pick up the tip. Yeah. Fill it up. He, uh, he, uh, he did it all on his own. Yeah. That's great. All right, well, we will have, I think, maybe one, maybe two, I don't know, uh, more episodes in this little mini-series about this. Um, and uh, Yeah, send in your questions. Uh, check the show notes for more resources. Yeah. Uh, but love to hear from you as you're wrestling with this stuff. Yeah, great. All right, Seth, well, uh, thanks for your work here. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>